Hi guys, I'm Sean McCambridge. For over 20 years, I've been inquisitive, learning and experimenting with different ways to leverage our greatest asset, our minds, to work for us rather than against us. Join me as I engage with these inspirational guests to provide you knowledge and insights to help you achieve more. This show is sponsored by Stellar Recruitment and inspired by a company purpose and why, which is inspiring growth and changing lives. Thanks very much for tuning in. This is a bonus episode as part of our recent live StellarX event we held here in Brisbane. Uh, inspirational event. Uh, the next speaker I'm going to introduce is Naomi Armitage, psychologist, expert around healthy workplaces, psychological safety. She talked to us about this great concept of the positive ripple effect of healthy workplaces. Amazing session. I'm really confident you'll enjoy. Thanks very much for tuning in. Thanks, Sean. Um, last time I was here was last Christmas, and it was to watch a very naughty Christmas. So I will not be taking my clothes off, it's okay. Um, but a very different um, presentation today. All right. Um, look, thank you for joining me. Um, mental health is something I'm really passionate about, and um, that Carly and I have um, built our business around is actually improving the mental health of every single um, individual in this room. And I want to talk to you, though, about a missed opportunity an opportunity to really improve well-being through work. And we do a really crappy job at this. So I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine that tomorrow when you woke up, there was this news article and it was headlined something along the lines of the greatest invention since Prozac had just been discovered. And that every single working Australian would have access to this wonder drug. That's 13 million Australians. And they get access to this drug every single day, and it was curing mental illness. It was making us well. How cool would that be? How exciting. Well, we actually do have access to that right now. Kind of not as grandiose as that, right? I'm exaggerating. But your work, work can make you well. Work can actually moderate that shitty stuff that's happening at home. If your relationship's falling apart, you know, you've got six family members, if you can come to work and work makes you feel like you're part of a team, you kick some goals, you've got some support, you've got purpose, vision, we've talked about that today already, it actually can make that nine out of ten yucky thing actually be a little bit okay and make it maybe a six out of ten thing. So work is powerful. Work can really impact every individual's mental health. Unfortunately, work sometimes actually makes us sick. It actually causes us to be unwell. You could have everything totally fine outside work, but you come into a workplace that's toxic. There's people backstabbing each other. You've got bullying. You've got harassment. You're undermined. You don't even know what you're there for. You feel like you're a number. We shouldn't be paid to go somewhere that makes us sick. That is nuts. Okay, but we do that. And if any of you in the room have actually experienced that, when work starts to make you sick, it starts to creep into your house. It starts to creep into your sleep. You can't sleep at night. It starts to affect your relationships. You're at the Sunday barbecue and your mind is thinking about work. Everyone around you is saying, what, you're not listening, you're not engaged, you're not here, you're not present. We should never have a situation where work makes us sick. We should use it for powers of good. It should make us well, and it should also moderate that other shitty stuff outside. 
I remember early in my career, I was working as a um, psychologist in a clinical setting. And I had this lady come to me and she was a victim of a domestic violence relationship. And she was actually still in that relationship at the time. And she talked about how at home she was humiliated, belittled, dehumanised. She felt like she was weak and small and that, that her fire had gone out. She was just like this little shell. But the one thing that kept her going was work. Because when she stepped into that work office, she was a little bit like her old self. That fire burned a bit brighter. She was valued, she was needed. People trusted her, they asked her for, asked her for advice. They confided in her. She was someone. Work made her well. Work gave her enough power to leave that relationship because it kept that ember burning, built up her self-worth enough for her to go, you know what, I'm better than this. I can get out of this. And so she was able to leave that relationship. However, if she was in a situation where she was part of a workplace that didn't provide support, where she was just a number, where there was infighting in the teams, everyone was out to get each other, then maybe it would have snuffed that little ember out and she would have stayed in that relationship. And I don't think she would have had the power to leave. So work can make us well. Work can help us get through that tough stuff outside of work. So if I just ask these people in this room, the organisations that you work for, can you put your hand up if you have some type of health and wellbeing initiative in your workplace? Put your hand up if your organisation has some sort of programs, yeah? 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 <laughs> Now, this is what's crazy and this is what makes me so mad and I'm here to talk to you about how we can fix this today. 90% of organisations have some type of health and wellbeing thing, right? Whether it be resilience training, RUK Day breakfast, EAPs, etc., etc. You'll have that stuff, right? So 90% of us have those. About in 2008, only 54%, so hardly not many organisations had that. The spend or the investment that your organisation makes is around $520 per person on some type of health and wellbeing initiative, right? That's up from 200 in 2014. We are spending more than ever before. It's on the agenda, it's talked about, but we are making people more sick than ever before. If you look at your psychological injury work cover data, it's on the rise. It's doubling, it's going up. Yet we're putting more money into this, it's more of a priority. What are we doing? It's because we're investing in the wrong places. You're wasting your money. Please don't hear me as saying that those things like EAP, resilience training, etc., are not important. You need those, but you're not actually treating the cause of the stuff that makes us sick. And there's so much more we can do to make our workplaces a place for good, a place that actually can make us well. What we do at the moment in organisations is you spend time polishing the fish. So you have this culture in your business where people undermine each other, there's power in only very certain pockets, where people are let, it, let it get away with poor behaviour. And you know what? You give them a little bit of resilience training, you take them out of the fish pond, swish them around, but you put them back into that same toxic environment. And if you've ever been someone who's been part of one of those toxic environments, those are you okay day breakfasts, they don't work, do they? Because you're walking straight back into that room, we're going to deal with the same crap that is making you sick. 
that same stuff that's eroding away at you. We need to look at what is making the fishbowl dirty. Is it the filter broken? Is the pH wrong? Start to look at the water. If we start to look at the water, then we can start to understand what is actually making our people sick. But also, if we start to look at the water, we can start to go, okay, if we could make it nice and clean, we'd make people well as well. But we don't, because you know what? That's hard. And it's easy to actually roll out a resilience program or get everyone to come along to a breakfast. That stuff's easy to do. Cleaning the water is tough, and it takes a long time and sustained effort, but it's worth it. So uh, you've probably heard, um, depending on your background, but um, now there's a big move. There's codes of practice that are now released. There's an ISO 45000 and standard. The World Health Organization has released a framework around healthy workplaces. There's a real push to shift employers' attention to what is actually making your fishbowl dirty and looking at that organisational elements. So the framework pieces of things that make the, the fishbowl dirty are things like your job design. You know, do people, we've talked about, you know, have vision, you know, do they understand their purpose, etc. Those things, do they have, are they connected with the values? All those things are actually really important in creating this framework. And if any of those standards are trying to get employers to look at that, not just focus on individuals. But one other key piece that really enables and actually helps those framework pieces come to life that I would like to share with you today, because I believe this is something that's within every person in this room's control, it's something that you can do to start to clean that water, is this concept called psychological safety. And I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a great filter. So this concept called psychological safety has been around since the 60s. Okay, Bennis and Shine, some early psychologists were talking about this, and then in the 90s, this guy called Kahn was talking about it. But really, it's only become mainstream since Amy Edmondson put it on the um, front page of the New York Times. It wasn't Amy, but her work. And basically, it is this. It's a concept that exists in teams, which is something that's very misunderstood. So it exists in a team environment, not an organisational environment. But of course, if you've got lots of teams, then it'll have a flow-on effect. But in a team, when I feel psychologically safe, I'm able to feel safe to take what we call an interpersonal risk. So in that environment, I feel safe to actually be the real me. I feel safe to ask questions. I feel safe to challenge the boss. I feel safe to ask for um, support. I feel safe to actually contribute a half-thought-out idea. I can actually take the mask off and be the real me. If we think about this from two different lenses, if we think about it from a mental illness lens, if I was actually not going so well, you need to have a psychologically safe environment for me to actually come and tell you. Because if it's not safe for me to speak up and say, hey, I'm not going so well, I need some support, I never will. From a proactive point of view, if I feel psychologically safe in my team, though, this is where I start to actually do good work. I feel valued. I feel connected. I feel like I'm contributing. So this little concept, it's not little, this concept, psychological safety, is about creating environments where I can be the real me, okay, contribute, ask questions, take risks. You might, psychological safety isn't mental health. Psychological safety also isn't psychological health and safety or psychosocial hazard management. This is a totally separate concept. This thing, right, called psychological safety is actually really hard to 
to um, to all well, this this environment, psychological safety, you have to work really hard to get people comfortable to take what we call an interpersonal risk, to be the real them. Because if you have this thing called impression management that overrides us. And this is why Facebook and Instagram is so popular. Um, who's got a Facebook account? Put your hand up. Don't be embarrassed. Oh, you're so old school. You need Instagram, my daughter tells me. She's like, Mum, no one has Facebook anymore. I'm like, yes, thank you, 13-year-old. Um, but this is why these platforms are so, because they tap into this deep psychology. We're having Facebook or Instagram allows us to show the world, you know what, look at me. I'm awesome. I'm the fastest, the smartest, the strongest. You want me on your team. And if we look at it from an evolutionary psych point of view, it was about being the king of the jungle, right? It meant you could be the top of the pack. The real you that has self-doubt thinks, oh, my gosh, I should never have got this job. I'm an imposter here, or thinks, oh my gosh, I don't know how to deal with this. I've got no idea. It's totally out of my, you know, realm. Who sees that real you? Probably someone you love at home. You might have those conversations. Maybe your friends. Or maybe you're part of a team that's really, you've got high levels of trust that you actually can share those things with. If you're part of a team at work or a place where you can share the real you, share those vulnerabilities... That helps us. That allows us to be you. You're not sitting there thinking, oh, gosh, how am I going to cover this up and make it look like I know what I'm doing? You can be the real you. But this is really hard to do. I'm just going to do a little survey here. So I want you to all stand up. It's after lunch, okay? I had to think about how am I going to keep you awake. Okay. I want you to sit down if this behaviour or this situation has happened to you recently, okay? So if this has happened to you recently, I'd like you to take a seat. Number one, and in a work context, have you been spoken over in a meeting recently? Sit down. <laughs> Excellent. Have you been excluded at work in a social setting or a communication? No. Has someone belittled or made fun of you? <laughs> Has someone ignored your contribution, dismissed it, disregarded it? Oh, geez, that's a good one. Um, have you been punished for a mistake recently that you made, intentional or unintentional? There's been a cost. Oh, that's good. Um, has someone taken credit for the good work that you've done? Oh, nasty people. Um, have you chosen not to express an opinion, a thought or an idea because you thought, you know what, it's not even worth doing it here. They're not going to listen to me. They're going to ignore it. Okay. All right. So look around the room. There's not many of us left standing. He can sit now. Uh, there's not many of you left standing. Those people who sat down, the behaviour or the situation that you experienced that I read out and the reason that you sat down are examples of things that contribute to low levels of psychological safety in organisations. Those are the things that make work places that make you sick. Those are the things, if it happened just once off, maybe not, but if it happens day in, day out, if it happens with certain people in your, they're, they're an intimate part of your team and it's day in, day out, it eventually starts to erode at you. It eventually does have an impact on you. 
This is the stuff that we need to get right if we want to make work a place that makes us well. Okay, There's no nice, simple thing to fix this, right? It's like in that meeting, when someone speaks over you, the fix is, um, excuse me, we've got conversational turn-taking rules in this room. Um, you've just spoken over such and such. It's, it's their turn. Can you give them the airtime? If we've got a social contract and that's the way we work in this team, your team's got your back and they'll step in and say that and point out that that behaviour just happened. But if you don't have those type of social contracts or consciousness around those behaviours and rules with those, then these behaviours go unchecked. These behaviours grow. So oops, I wanted to share with you a great article, and you can read this. Um, it's by Sal and Sal in the um, recent MIT um, management re slow management review. And it was looking at, they were looking at toxic workplace behaviours. And this really nicely aligns with what does low psychological safety look like in a workplace? And what Sal and Sal did is um, in America, they have glass door reviews. So when someone you know, leaves an organisation, they give them a rating and then they can write comments. And they actually got some really cool data analytics and they looked at all of the free text for 1.2 million Glassdoor reviews. And they went through all the free text to look at what were the themes, what were the behaviours that really made people give these organisations a bad review and want to leave. And these were the list, the top four. The most um, quoted behaviour that contributed to someone leaving was non-inclusive exclusivity where people were being left out, excluded from things, whether it be because of their background, um, you know, power struggles, etc. Then it was around disrespectful behaviours, being disrespected at work, you know, being minimised. And people talked about things like, you know, I'm just a number, I'm just a cog in the wheel, that kind of stuff. Really gets to people in here. Unethical behaviour, so low integrity, you know, whether, whether people were lying, cheating, stealing. And lastly being in an organisation that was cutthroat, where it was undermining each other, you know, stabbing in the back or, you know, stab or be stabbed, that kind of stuff. Those behaviours contribute to toxic, toxic workplaces. These behaviours are the stuff that makes people sick. These are the things that make workplaces psychologically unsafe. This is another little add-on to this. Oh, so, so in Stanford, actually, another research looking at this type of stuff found that organ, organ, people who are exposed to these type of behaviours, they're 32 to 55% more likely to suffer some sort of significant physical illness, diabetes, cardiovascular event. So this stuff doesn't make you just psychologically sick. It makes you physically sick too. It's bad for you. But look at this. This is interesting. Another poll in the room. Put your hand up if your company has one of these words in its values or its charter. Put your hand off if you have one of these words in your company. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Inter interesting. So 82% of companies will have these. These are in the top 10 most common values, right? You know what's really bad? If you're one of those companies that put your hand up and then you're one of the companies that have this behaviour that is occurring in the organisation, you're going to make people real sick. Because those values are not being lived values. The behaviours in that workplace are the opposite to what the organisation espouses to. We have, you know, diversity. We value diversity of thought. But you know what? Every time someone who actually doesn't quite fit in comes from a different background, you know, they go, I'm not, uh, it's too hard here. They don't want to listen to me. I'm not one of them. They leave. 
they found when looking at these Glassdoor reviews, when this was the case, when these values were in place, they weren't lived. That made people extra sick. So for you all in this room, if you have any type of input, get rid of those words in the value set if you can't live them. Because you're just doing that, you're setting people up for failure. Got a situation at the moment that, um, interestingly, this person, um, he's a very good technical expert in his area. He's been with this organisation for about 20 years. Um, every performance review he's ever had has been glowing, fabulous. But he's just moved into a new division. And that new division, um, they're part of a team of 13. There's one person in that team who's a bully. And this person, I think, is probably really threatened by my technical expert. And, but this bully goes, the behaviours go unchecked. Every one of those things up there, he does. He'll walk into the tea room and say good morning to everyone else in the room, bar my technical expert. When he's doing a coffee run, never asks. You know, this is the little crappy stuff. You know, it's when they're actually at a, at a meeting, they'll have had a conversation outside and agreed on a plan of attack. The bully walks in and says totally the opposite and throws him under the bus. He's like, we just, am I going crazy? I actually just had a conversation with him and we agreed this was the path forward, but now he's just set me up to look like an idiot. So this guy is just, and so he came to see me and, you know, it's like I used to own an EAP company and this is what kind of really drove me to, to, to have this pivot in my career because, you know what, when you go to EAPs, a psychologist, we don't have magic fairy dust. I wish I did. I'd be really rich. Um, but we don't, you can't come into that, right? And we don't sprinkle stuff, dust on him and fix him and he goes back into the workplace. No, that doesn't happen. You might give them some skills and some strategies, but even that isn't enough necessarily to deal with that ongoing behaviour day in, day out. And so he came to see me from a, a perspective of a coaching, clinical perspective, what can I do to try and manage this situation? So we went through a heap of strategies to do that, looked at the communication, et cetera. No, doesn't work. And it's not going to. The thing, he then built up enough courage to actually talk to his leader about it. But his leader said to him, oh, you know, that's just Paul. That's not the bully's real name. That's just Paul. You know, he's always a bit difficult and prickly, but he's a good guy underneath, you know. He's just totally minimised everything that that technical expert has, you know, actually brought to him and had the courage to bring. You know what's even worse? That organisation has these values. The organisation that this is occurring in, they have codes of conduct, they preach about, you know, you know, behaviours in the workplace, you know, making sure you're actually respectful for each other, et cetera, et cetera, you know, all that stuff. And it's happening and the leader knows about it. Okay, crazy. That is a workplace that's making him sick. Um, and that is a workplace where the values are not aligned with the behaviours that are coming to life. And my advice to him was, mate, you need to leave. Stat. You need to go find somewhere else or this is going to continue because you've got no avenues. This is the stuff um, that has a huge impact on our mental health. Now, the work that Carly and I um, have been doing, we've been really interested in this. And this is what makes me excited, right? Because there's things that we can do. Those bigger things around setting the values and things like that, that's, that's outside most of us in our room's control. But there's little things that you can do. By you just actually shaping the psychological safety of your team, and I'm going to talk a little bit around how you can start to do that, you can have an exponential impact on the mental health of those people within that team. So we've been measuring over the last few years of working with different clients and all different industries, measuring the level of psychological safety in a team, but then also measuring the individual 
Um, sorry, the team psychological safety and then measuring the individual's well-being as well. And this is just a self-report, it's not a clinical scale. And what we found that those teams where there's low levels of psychological safety, so where it's unsafe to speak up, where no one can challenge, where you're actually fearful, actually putting your foot forward, where you kind of duck, and, duck for cover, those individuals in those teams are more likely to have low levels of individual well-being. Conversely, when teams have high levels of psychological safety, people are more well. That makes sense at an intuitive level, right? We kind of know that. And think about the team that you've worked in. If you've had a really awesome team that you've been part of, you know, where you felt really valued, you felt like you were kicking goals, you feel like you're really supported, how was your mental health? Do you think it gave you energy? Do you think it boosted you up? And chances are it did. So if we can actually understand the formula of how can we create teams with high levels of psychological safety, then we can start to exponentially improve the well-being of not just you know, me, because I'm actually really interested in this, but everyone on that team. Everyone on that team can be impacted by the environment. So how we actually, this, this, sorry, this is just for those of you who um, may be not convinced that this is your secret source. This psychological safety thing, though, it actually underpins all your other business leaders too. So diversity inclusion. If you don't have psychological safety, diversity doesn't work because inclusion doesn't work. And interestingly, when we measure the psychological safety of teams, those teams who have more diversity usually start off with low levels of psychological safety because it's hard. Diversity means diversity of thought, values, opinions, experience, ways of working. And to actually get that to work together, we need to kind of connect. We need to understand each other. We need to have a level of trust. And if you don't have that environment that fosters that, we're just all little individuals, okay, who actually can't connect to harness that power. Some of the clients that we're working with are actually using this psychological safety as one of their predictors and one of the key components of their diversity strategy. They know if they don't have diversity and psychological safety, it's going to, it's going to fall out. The other thing, productivity. So, and I'll quickly just talk about this one, but Project Aristotle, Google, they wanted to know what was the difference between high-performing and low-performing teams. They added the variable psychological safety after two years and nothing. 180 other variables couldn't find a difference and it accounted for 70% of the variance. So it's a secret between the high performance and low performance. Safety, and this is our other kind of um, real opportunity here. We know that teams who have high levels of psychological safety are likely to be more physically safe. So if you come from an industry that has physical hazards, danger, you want this. Reporting behaviours are a really key part of making people physically safe, right? Because I need to say, oh, that's dangerous, look out, or oh, we've got some corrective action here. But if I don't feel safe enough to do that, no one actually identifies that hazard and does anything about it. This is frightening. Think about this next time you go to hospital. You want to know what the psychological safety score of your surgical team is. I kid you not. It's like when I was in fatigue for a while ago, when I was, you know, going to have kids, I was like, right, what's your fatigue policy here? Because I don't want someone who's been 20 hours awake anywhere near me. Anyway, so now psychological safety. We, this, is, this is hospital data. In hospitals where there's teams with low levels of psychological safety, errors are only reported 70% of the time. So the nurse is watching the surgeon perform the surgery and notices that he's missed or she's missed a key step and they think to themselves, should I or shouldn't I bring this up? Oh, no. Last time I brought something up, you know, I was belittled, I was, you know, my head was ripped off, I'll just stay silent. 
this is someone who's performing a medical operation on you and is stuffing up and no one in the room is calling him on it? Shit. Okay. Whereas if the team had high levels of psychological safety, 90% of the time someone would actually bring that up and something could be done about it. This is dangerous. Think about mental health at work again, though. If you're in a team with low levels of psychological safety and you're not okay, you're not going to speak up and report that if there's low levels of psychological safety. You're going to stay silent. You're going to suffer in silence. You're not going to access those programs like the EAP and the medical support that you've got in your organisation. You need people. You're not going to put in the bullying harassment report through your system because I don't feel safe enough to do this. You need psychological safety for all those things to work in your organisations, all those systems to work. So how do you do it? A lot of people make the mistake, and this is where I want to leave you with some things that you can start to do. A lot of organisations aspire for a speak-up culture, and they say, yep, speak up here, speak up. But you know what? People aren't going to just speak up. Are they stupid? Okay. I've seen what happened when I spoke up here before. You got your head ripped off. You actually need to work through this progress. So we developed this model based on human psychological needs. And the foundation of that piece, if you want to build a psychologically safe space, you need to make people feel like they belong. Do I feel like I'm part of the team? Do I feel like I've got the trust of the pack? That's the first step to creating a psychologically safe workplace. Because if I don't have that, I'm not going to do anything else. From an evolutionary perspective, when I was running around the savannah and cave person time, I actually needed to know that my pack had my back or I'd get eaten by something. Once I've got that, the next basic foundational piece is the contribute one. And it really ties in really nicely to what um, James and Jonah were talking about earlier um, today. But this is about, do I understand why I'm here and how I can help the team on this, on this journey? Think about evolutionary perspective, cave person running around. If I was the lazy one, right, everyone else out, is out hunting for dinner, I'm having a nana nap. And then I rock up at the last minute when everyone's done all the hard work and said, went, hey, guys, can I join you? What's the pack going to say to me? Bugger off. You know, we've done the hard work. You're a liability, man. Well, you're, not, you're not adding value here. But that's the same in organisations. When you feel like you're valued, people call on you for your opinion, your thoughts, your contribution, you go, you know what, yep, I feel safe because this team needs me. A bully does the opposite. A bully makes you feel excluded, so you're not part of the pack. They leave you out of social things, communication, and then they start to make you look stupid. They look like, make you look like you're not contributing to the team. So in a meeting, they'll say, oh, what's the numbers on that? Full well knowing you don't have the access to the numbers on that on the top of your head. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, I'll come back to you. Oh, don't worry. Sorry. That stuff, right? And that erodes you. And if you've ever been in a workplace and been under, you know, interacting with a bully, that stuff just cuts you in here. It's because it's the foundation of our psychological needs. Once those two things are in place, then you can progress. And then you start to see the next stage of building psychological safety is making people okay with having, with failure making them comfortable and having a learning mindset, making them comfortable and go, you know what, learning, it's an opportunity to get better here. You know, it's not a cost or a smack for doing that. And I noticed not many of you sat down when I said, was there a punishment for a mistake, which is great. Um, it shows at least there's some sort of sophistication in, in the mindset there. And then once people are okay with failure and okay with learning and are okay to share that, then you start to see people speaking up. But you don't just get to the top of the pyramid. 
I um this blow this this story blows my mind. A recently returned Afghanistan soldier. Um, he was in one of our workshops for doing this, and he said to me, "You know what? I was working in the front line in Afghanistan. We're part of a team doing really dangerous work, but I never felt psychologically unsafe because I knew that everyone had my back. We all had our job. You know, when stuff wasn't going wrong, we talked about it." You know, there was no, you know, there was no, none of this, don't be worried about offending someone. You said it, right? Because it could get you killed. So I felt totally, totally safe and supported. I came back to Australia. He took a job at a university, pen pushing. He has never been more psychologically damaged than that job. This is an Afghanistan soldier. He said, that place made me sick. I had to leave. He said, I went into that place, I was excluded, there was power struggles, I was undermined, you know, I was thrown under buses, I wake up feeling sick. At two o'clock in the morning I was waking up and I'd have to get out of bed and I'd just have to run. I'd run and I'd run and run until I was physically exhausted to get the adrenaline out of my system. He said, I fought in Afghanistan and this didn't happen to me. That place, a university in Australia was making him sick. What? nuts. And because this stuff, the foundation of that pyramid was being eroded. So here's five things that you can do today to build the psychological safety of the teams that you work in. You do not need to be a leader. This is our opportunity. If, if we can all get this right, we can make 13 million people in Australia better. We can make workplaces that make them well. The first thing is to think about, in the last seven days, have you admitted a mistake to a peer or a team member? Why is that an important thing to do? How does that create psychological safety? Any suggestions? Anyone want to take an interpersonal risk and yell out? Yeah, yeah, it shows we're all human, hey? We can make mistakes, we're transparent, we're vulnerable, we're not superheroes here. Great. Have you asked for help from a leader, a peer, or a subordinate. How does that build psychological safety if we're asking others? Particularly if you're the boss asking others, what is that telling people? Your value to contribute. Yeah, well, you know something. We need your input here. Yeah. Have you learned anything new? That's about, you know, it shows that you've got a curious mindset. You're asking questions. You're not being a know-it-all. You're being a learn-it-all. Have someone asked you for help? It means that they trust you. They feel safe enough to actually come to you for some sort of support, whether it be work support or home support. And lastly, have you spoken up about a concern? Have you actually lived this behaviour and done this? If you've done it, particularly if you've demonstrated this model, this behaviour to someone above you, it's powerful. It says, you know what, it's okay in this place to speak up. The important thing is that person responds productively. <laughs> to you, which is another story for another day. But you modelling that behaviour is showing that, you know what, I can do that around here. It's accepted around here. These are the things that you can do in your team and you don't need to be a leader. These are the things that are actually going to create workplaces that make people safe, make people well. Work shouldn't make us sick. It should make us well. And if we can get this right... Before you go back to your workplace, before you invest another cent in another shiny program that's a good program, go and look within, look into your team, work at building the psychological safety of that team so that you can create this safe place where people feel valued, where they can contribute, 
where they're needed, where they're wanted, and you will make the best investment in actually improving their mental health. And it'll be exponential for everyone in that room. It won't be reliant on that one person applying the meditation strategy that they learned at the resilience training, okay? It actually will be forced down their throat. Everyone on that team will be part of this. Everyone in that team will be experiencing this thing and have their well-being improved. And you know what? It'll make that home stuff just a little bit better. It'll make that home stuff just a little bit easier to cope with. It's paying it forward. Thank you. Uh, I think I speak for everyone, uh, Naomi, saying that was awesome. Um, and when I think of a TEDx-style talk, I think of exactly that. So uh, firstly, congratulations, you nailed that. So um, beyond that, who's got some questions for Naomi? Steve? Thank you, Naomi. That was exceptional and I think Thanks. incredibly important stuff. Um, I, we were having this conversation actually over coffee the other day just about this very thing, psychological safety, and the discussion went towards um, that it's a very, I understand the team uh, perception of psychological safety, um, and the, part of the conclusion of the conversation was that it was very much an individual thing. What makes me feel psychologi uh, psychologically unsafe might be quite different for what you feel, and our thresholds and our ability to cope with what's safe and what's not is different between individuals. Could you speak to how you ensure that those people who have a lower, if you like, if I can use those words, psychological safety, how you account for them because we don't want to walk around the workplace uh, space not even telling a joke or, oh. or, or, or you know, being, you know, engaging yeah. with other people for the fear of that. How do you deal with that grey area? Yeah, no, great question. Um, so there's two things. As in a number one, in a psychologically safe teams, there'd be no tiptoeing around. There'd be really tough, difficult conversations. And so a little clue, um, and I remember we had this great project, Carly and I, and they, the client said to us, oh my gosh, when you go and deal with this team, they are a mess. Like they yell and scream at each other. They're horrible. And so we went up there with this expectation but they weren't. They just had really high trust. They had rules of engagement and they had those tough conversations. So, you know, one, one thing would be is definitely if you've got people tiptoeing, then I would say it's not safe would be a real sign. But how do you build it? And I think your question around the threshold. Some people, you know, when I get feedback or, you know, I might get more offended and, and I'd really take it personally, whereas other people don't. That's part of developing psychological safety is actually working through that as a team. And it's actually breaking down and going, well, actually... Um, how do you like to work and how do you like to receive feedback on that? And so it's actually a process of working together to understand those tolerances and work out, well, okay, you find that a little bit confronting because you perceive that I'm saying that to you to make you look bad, but it's not because I'm trying to make you look bad. I just want, I'm a really curious person, so I tend to ask a lot of questions. I'm not putting you under the pump. So really that threshold piece is... Um, is actually a team process of debriefing and understanding how each other work and understanding why that is your perception and how can we work with that. So um, it's not tiptoeing around it, though. That was awesome. Thank you so much to reflect on. I was um, considering probably something we learned when Jonah spoke this morning around the jungle and the zoo and how you can um, prepare people for a jungle as opposed to a zoo, but then how can you do it in this in this way that also fosters the psychological safety? Because it's not about 
throwing them into the frying pan or into the dirty water as you have as well. But how can you sort of balance the two, making sure people are prepared for the environment that, that perhaps your industry is, um, but also at the same time ensure they're safe? Yeah, no, great question. Um, and this, again, is kind of goes back to Sid's point. That's why it's actually being very conscious and articulate about this is how we do things here. So, you know, you might have come from an environment where everyone does tiptoe around. Um, oh, actually, a great example... Um, we've just been doing this cool project with the United Nations, right, um, which was awesome. But this was totally in your face. I was on this WebEx the other night and the French were on and um, then and the, some of the technology broke and so the French <laughs> leader gave the technician a tune-up, <laughs> would be what we would say in Australia, but it wasn't a tune-up. That is really direct and that's how they communicate. But me not being exposed to that, well, that was my interpretation. So, um, and I think that's the same in teams here. When you go into a new team, it's actually articulating, this is the way we do things here. We ask questions and they're not, please don't see them as challenges to you, but we're, we're about actually being curious scientists here. So we talk a lot about social contracting in teams. And so when you get a new person into the team, it's communicating your social contract. This is how we work here. This is the ways that, you know, we communicate or, you know, challenge, etc. Because if you don't know, you don't know, right? And you can interpret it as like I did for the French leader, I thought she was being really mad. She was just being direct. I was scared. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I was just interested, is it qualitative or quantitative analysis that you do in the teams? Like do you do sort of like a score around this? And secondly, when you're working with companies and teams, can you just explain a bit about how you coach them yep. into this? Yeah, yeah. So it's quantitative and qualitative. So the measurement of psychological safety is actually a Harvard-based assessment. So it's a validated tool. So there's a quantitative piece. Um, we just overlay that basically model against the human needs model to make it user-friendly so people understand what it is. And then we also gather qualitative data, so the sentiment. And that's where the real richness is. The sentiment tells you, you know, why are they, you know, scoring so low on that item? And that data is then, and the process then is basically a assessing that, but then we actually again get work with the team and debrief that data together as a team um, to actually understand, you know, what are the dynamics that are happening that are creating that impact for you as the individual I wrote that I felt excluded all the time. And so it could be little things like they're the only Brisbane-based employee and everyone else is up in, you know, Gladstone or Rockhampton or Sydney. So they always feel like they're always the, the third, you know, you know, the sort of the afterthought. Okay, how can we better actually, you know, work with that? Um, so we actually use that process of actually debriefing the data. At the end of that, understanding what are the elements that are contributing to that. Um, so, for example, we developed then a social contract, and this is little things. Um, so a really difficult team, um, they had a lot of situations where there was lots of gossiping in the hallways because people were too scared to have direct conversations. So one of their social contracts or rules of engagement was no triangles, and Gilbert Anoka talks about that. Um, but no triangles is basically about not having a conversation out of the room, having a conversation here. So it's that kind of thing that we all commit to. And it's interesting, with that particular team, that was the catalyst to actually breaking up the bad behaviour. And someone who was a particular contributor kept trying to engage their peers in the triangles, but the peers went, ah, we don't do triangles here anymore. So it kind of had an agreed language, an agreed way of working, and it gave a voice to that. And, and recognition. Um, and then we kind of run some, we do some like skill-based work with them as a team throughout the year, as well as individual coaching if there's particular skills that the leader needs or an individual might be really struggling with as well. 
It's like I said, it's not the easy stuff, right? It's slow burn. <laughs> Naomi, congratulations on your work with the United Nations. That's Thank very you, impressive. Um, I read a quote just recently and it, it really resonated with work should not make you sick. And I'm just interested in how you can apply that. So the quote was, um, to measure your culture, it's the the stomach of your employees on a Sunday night mm. as they think about Monday morning. Mm. And that's a true so measure true. of psychological safety. Yes. But how would you measure that? Or how do yeah. you even get that mindset into leaders who are disengaged, mm. who are just looking at metrics? Mm. And I think that's the CEO disease. They're looking at metrics. They're looking at the yeah. results, what's on the <laughs> spreadsheet. But we know that the reality is, is yeah. it's Sunday night and that's that employee's feeling is whether or not yeah. they're engaged yeah. at work. How do you yeah. raise that awareness? Yeah. I mean, the experience we've had, that's such a nice quote, the experience that we've had is actually when you're starting to get this psychological safety data and then overlay it with their other internal data, so, you know, their safety performance. Like, so a big safety project we just did recently, they have gone from having, you know, a huge, and I get all my safety, I don't know the words, but they had lots of issues and injuries. That's gone down to pretty much nothing. Um, and the teams where the psychological safety has gone up, their reporting behaviours have gone up. So, they've, so the way that I guess the people we're working with and the people below, you know, the safety HR, they're using that as a way of actually saying to the leader, look, this stuff here, this psychological safety stuff we're measuring, we can measure it. This is important. This is the Sunday night stuff we need to have on our KPI scorecard. Um, so it's building up, you know, like that business case and showing that overlap, but it's slow, right? It's, it's hard to do because it is a fluffy yeah, it's a fluffy stuff. Do you do you think the and ironically the government's changing legislation on the first of April, twenty twenty three, um, bringing in the psychosocial mm -hmm. ISO standard four five double oh three. Will that be instant? That change. No. How does that get enforced no. then? No. So it's interesting. The, that is really interesting. So I've been involved with a few clients who are looking at getting that ready, ISO ready, you know, and responding. All the effort has been on the hard framework stuff, you know, how we compliant around and we've got a bullying harassment policy, does it meet these things, you know, what's our hours of work like, how do we monitor overtime, but very minimal on the way that people operate within those systems. They've got all the papers, but it's how they operate within those systems because that's the hard stuff, that's the culture piece again. Um, but that's where you're going to get the real gains and that's really the enabler to that hard stuff. So I do hope that they cope. I think, it's, I think it's the right way to go because I think it's making them move away from individual strategies, but it's actually getting them to look at the whole picture, not just the easy bits. Um, just interesting, just to kind of elaborate on that quickly, um, internal audit committees are starting to look at this concept of psychological safety. So I had an audit committee say, look, we've got all these balance and checks around, you know, compliance to processes, you know, to manage against um, fraud, et cetera, but we don't have anything to... We understand that the behaviour is actually going to influence compliance to those what do we, you know, how can we start to look at that, which is pretty cool because that's where you do start to see some real investment and it's in, boards become interested in that then, which I think then trickles down as well. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm just interested in some of the cases that you've worked with. When, you, um, when they have taken you on board and, and adopted everything that you're saying and doing, what is the sort of time frame that you can actually start to see a really uh, strong shift in the culture of that organisation? Yeah, look, it's, you know, 18 months. Like this is, you know, like some of them it's two years, two and a half years. Yeah, long time. And also you need it at scale. You know, if you just have pockets doing it, it's, you know, it's nice, fun, 
goes back to being the same. And also if you don't have that senior C-suite, you know, ELT doing it, then again, it's just nice to do. It's good for the people in the team, but, you know, to get that whole big shift, it's, it, yeah, it needs to be at scale. Just one final question. What do you think you, you talked about before around the fact that there's never been more awareness, uh, wellness programs, all the rest of it, but in spite of that, there's a, uh, a negative correlation around there's bigger issues and people are uh, uh, less well than they ever have been before. What do you think that is? Oh, well, that's, that's, that's another Ted, that's another day. <laughs> because there's two questions. One is, are people actually more unwell than they ever have been? And that's a different story all again, because there's a lot of pathologizing very normal feelings and emotions, which I do think is contributing to that data. Um, and then the other piece around, well, if, if it is real data, what's contributing to that at work or in generally at work? Um, I don't really know. If I think about the things that have made people sick, it's been people's poor behaviour um, and that bullying harassment piece. And I wonder if there's, you know, the DV stuff, is that, that type of behaviour, bullying harassment at work, DV at home? I actually don't know. Good question. Someone so, else might know. Some for another day, <laughs> but uh, maybe we can join me in saying thank you to Naomi. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. It means the world to me. Uh, if you got something of value out of the podcast, I'd love you to pay it forward and share it with anyone that might benefit. Thanks again for tuning in.